This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. This is Anne Marie Schieber of Healthcare News. You know, for a long time, we in healthcare news and on this podcast have been singing the praises of direct primary care. DPC is an affordable and super easy way to get primary care outside of the health insurance morass. I belong to DPC myself personally. I have for five years. The care is great. I pay under a hundred bucks a month. Uh, My daughter and her children get care there for under $120 a month, and we never have to wait more than a day to get in, if we need to get in at all, because we stay pretty healthy. Um, Now, in Congress, there has been a spate of health care reform bills, and one of them is the reintroduction of a bill from 2020. It's called the Personalized Care Act, PCA, Uh, It is anticipated to really move the needle on DPC, and here now to talk to me about that is Dr. Lee Gross. He is the chairman of DPC Action and the president of Docs for Patient Care Foundation. Uh, He's also the founder of Epiphany Health Direct Primary Care. Welcome. That's quite the introduction. (laughs) (laughs) I, I don't think we've ever had you on the podcast before. You know, we chat quite a bit with Chad Savage, who is another DPC doctor, and I know you guys work quite a bit together uh, on your work at DPC Action. Um, first, tell us a little more about you. You are the founder of DPC Practice, this DPC practice called Epiphany Health. Tell us where it is, how you how how you how you got into it, and when it got started, and where things are going. Yeah, so I'm in Southwest Florida. I'm a family physician, and the name of my practice is Epiphany Health. And Epiphany is a pretty strange name for a healthcare company, but in fact, we did have an Epiphany when I was a fully insured practice back in 2002 to 2009. Uh, and we found that it was impossible really to run a primary care practice in the current situation, dealing with the insurance companies, with Medicare, with all the rules and regulations, it became nearly impossible. So we had a small business that approached us. It was a heating and air conditioning company. And they said, hey, you know, our insurance premiums are skyrocketing and all of our employees see you. Why don't I just contract with you directly to take care of our employees and we'll all save a lot of money and get better care. And that was our epiphany moment back in 2009 was why are we insuring primary care? Why are we inserting so many obstacles and barriers between the doctor and the patient, filing codes and claims for every single touch? And then we're, we're upset that it's impersonal, it's cumbersome, it's very confusing, uh, and it is very labor-intensive and utilizes a lot of useless resources. Uh, and so we created a subscription-based business model back again in 2009 and launched it on January 1st in 2010. And it turned out, in hindsight, it was one of the earliest direct primary care practices in the country. Uh, and we flipped the switch on this, and the craziest thing happened. Again, this was right around the passage of the Affordable Care Act. We had uninsured patients flock to our southwestern Florida practice from all over the state of Florida. We would see patients from Miami, from Orlando, from Naples, drive two, three hours away for their medical care because they suddenly could afford this basic, simple thing that we were doing, which, you know, as you mentioned, at the time, it was about $85 a month for unlimited primary care services for adults and as low as $15 a month for children. See the magic of the free market. 
You know, it always meets a, a demand. It solves somebody's problem. And here you had a small business that was so frustrated with the health insurance uh, maze and said, wow, and you solved their problem. So terrific. I'm glad things uh, are going well now and that you're up to speed. Um, let's get into this Personalized Care Act. It removes a lot of obstacles to DPC, which may explain why it is not more widely known in some parts of the country, even though, like you said, it's been out for more than probably 13 years now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I th think the logical question is, okay, that's great for primary care, but what happens if you have a hospitalization? What happens if you're in a car accident or get cancer? And I think those are, are fair questions about the, the limitations of what direct, direct care can do. Uh, it turns out, actually, that after 13 years of doing this, there are a multitude of things that you can do in a direct care uninsured space, but you still do have these major catastrophic issues that you have to deal with. So that gets to the point of, you know, what are you going to do to cover those sorts of big ticket things? The stuff mm -hmm. that insurance is really good at, right? You know, you want your insurance if your house burns down, but you don't want it to mow the lawn. Uh, that's the whole, the whole principle of having some sort of high deductible health plan or catastrophic plan to put in place. Uh, and so the logical choice is some sort of health savings account coupled with a high deductible health plan that wraps around the, the direct primary care. So make the routine stuff predictable and affordable uh, and then provide a safety net for the stuff that, that is not routine and predictable. The challenge is, is in the nuances of what is allowed under the tax code with health savings accounts and what defines a health plan and what is the definition of direct primary care. You know, we're using 1940s and 1960s tax code to define health policy in 2023, and that's where mm. we, we come into lots of challenges. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit more about the options that you can couple with DPC for the more expensive care. But first, um, I want to talk about policy successes. So, you know, under the Trump administration, there were some really good actions taken that really moved the needle uh, for DPC, like association health plans, they just gave a little more options out there. Now, the tax code was another big deal that's still being grappled with. Um, but um, under this administration and in Congress, there hasn't been a whole lot. Why do you suppose that's the case? Oh, well, there are lots of reasons. There's not a whole lot of anything coming out of Congress at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, I'm, so I can't say that it's specific to DPC and health policy. There's just not a lot moving at the moment. Uh, and I guess the, the gridlock in Washington, I suppose that uncertainty creates opportunities at the state level because problems still need to be fixed. So while you see things not moving at the, at the federal level, there's lots of innovation happening now at the state level because of the inactivity at the federal level. Um, but you're absolutely correct. We, you know, under the Trump administration, we moved the needle on, um, you know, options for for emergency catastrophic. So we went to the to the White House and the Trump administration and said we need some sort of catastrophic plan, and that is where they expanded the access to these short-term uh, limited duration insurance policies. Mm. These very cheap policies that they're that are sort of being dubbed as junk insurance, but honestly, it's the true insurance. It's the hedge against the catastrophic loss. Yeah. Bundled with direct primary care, these major medical short-term plans, although we'd like them to be long-term, uh, you know, the Trump administration extended them from three months to three years. And now with a stroke of the pen, the Biden administration has drastically limited access to these affordable options that people have. Uh, and now they're you know, planning on ratcheting it back down to, to six months. 
Uh, and so it's a, it, it is a, certainly a challenge that we're dealing with in terms of um, what people consider to be accessible health care. You know, in, in, you know, in my world, you know, health insurance and coverage is not health care. Uh, yeah. And I think in other people's worlds, coverage is is synonymous with health, with access to care. And that's not always the, the case. Yeah, I'm very familiar with this change to short-term insurance because this is what I use. <laughs> and right. I live in a pretty restrictive state, Michigan, so I have to renew. But there's some places, and, and I, for our listeners who don't understand, let me explain what this means. So this is probably going to, this is supposed to take effect in January. And I thought it was four months, maybe six months that you had to renew. But the way it works, okay, so typically the way it works when the plan is done, like in six months, I have to go out and shop for a new plan. The plans do not cover pre-existing insurance. And I kind of call them no frills insurance for healthy people. So if you're planning to use health health insurance like it's conventionally used today, a short-term plan is not the right plan for you. Um, but what's going to happen is, you know, people do get sick. Things happen. And if you're in the middle of this plan, maybe towards the end of the term, and you're getting care, and then it's like month six, you lose that insurance. you got to shop it out again, and then you will not be able to get health insurance because you will now have a condition that needs treatment. So, you know, when, what Trump did was really amazing. He allowed it to go on for three years with uh, unlimited renewals. And so this is really going to change things. Um, you know, I, I, why, why do you think the Democrats, they've always vilified these plans, called them junk insurance. Uh, why should Democrats support a model? This is largely a free market way of doing health care. Why should Democrats support a model that is that? I don't. I certainly don't want to paint with such a broad brush, um, but I can, you know, in my experience now and going to Washington for almost 15 years, uh, is that right now anything that looks like it's going against the Affordable Care Act or undermining the Affordable Care Act is going to be pushed back against. So anything that takes you outside of the, the ACA marketplace is going to be looked at as a, as a threat. Uh, and so a lot of these free market ideas certainly do look like they may be undermining. And for me, they look like they're adding adding opportunities and adding choices that give people more more access and more affordability, more competition, because you know competition uh, is the only thing that really improves the quality and reduces the, the cost. Uh, also, in my experience in, in the policy world, Democrats tend to want to make health care free, uh, free at the point of, of care. And you know, when you start talking about free market options, you know, the, the logical or the obvious question that comes up, well, you can't shop around your heart attack. Well, no, yeah. you, well, actually, you probably, you probably can shop around your yeah. heart attack, but what about the 85% of things that are not emergent or urgent or catastrophic that you can shop around? Uh, so just because you can't fix 100% of a problem doesn't mean you can't attempt to easily fix 85% of the problem. Uh, and so that's where these free market solutions really do become quite powerful. Um, so... Yeah. And Um, and they tend to measure success by the number of people who are enrolled in government care. And fear is always a big part of the conversation, telling people that health care is impossible to afford, that there's just no way that anybody should have to pay for their own care. That's why they're against health savings accounts. Um, You know, it's but you look at our 
the metrics, what's going on in our country, we've got life expectancy declining, <laughs> not going up. We have a lot of people who still do not care with all, you know, with almost 50% of the care covered now by the government. And you look at places yeah, like I mean, Canada, you know, um, I mean, you, the, you know, the logical argument that, that they, you know, that they tend to make or the opposition to the HSAs is that most people don't have $10,000 to put into their bank accounts. So why would you have a $10,000 plan? It's as if they're uninsured. You know, the problem is that they're paying so much money for, for the bad health insurance that they can't afford to, to put any money in their savings. And, you know, they're continuously negotiating their wages to get, to, to get raises for the insurance companies. Uh, so you get the wage stagnation. If you fix the cost of health care problem, which the Affordable Care Act never even attempted to fix the cost of health care, uh, it just attempted to, to broaden coverage. But if you fix the cost of health care issues, suddenly the, tax, the, the, the dollars become more affordable to be able to pay for the care itself. Uh, and so all of a sudden, these higher deductible plans make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, which brings me to my next question, which is the employer exclusion. You know, a lot of people don't realize that when you get health care paid for by an employer, that's your compensation. <laughs> you know, they're not giving you cash. They're giving you health insurance. Um, right. And everyone's negotiating for, for raises for their insurance company. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And, you know, it, it is a tax break that companies and their employees get when the company provides this health care. When you're outside of this loop, you do not get that same tax advantage. Does the Personalized Care Act deal with this in any way? And could that impact DPC? It levels the playing field so that individuals are entitled to the same tax breaks as businesses. So as you absolutely astutely you know, mentioned, if a business buys uh, their employee a health plan, then the business gets to write that off on their taxes. And if an employee on their own goes out to try to buy a health plan, uh, it's not by itself tax deductible. It's not pre-tax dollars that they use unless, of course, the, the, their health care expenses exceed, I think it's like 7.5% of their income. Uh, but the businesses don't have that same threshold. Uh, and so, you know, the first portion of it is is full freight, full, you know, fully taxed dollars. And so this, the Personalized Care Act gives the power back to the individual. So you, you know, I ask, well, why would a pre-existing condition even become a problem in, in the current world? It's because when you lose your employment and your health coverage is tied to your employer, then if you, if you lose your employment, you lose your insurance. Or if you change jobs, you lose your insurance. That's where you get the job block. <clears throat> but if the individual, if if the individual owns their own insurance plan and you empower the individual with the, the same pre-tax treatment to own that health plan, then they can go from job to job if they need to. They can retire. If they get sick, they still own their plan. So it almost eliminates the, the, <clears throat> the issue around pre-existing conditions because the plan stays with the patient. Yeah. And again, you're adding another player into the loop, which is the employer. And so people are abstracted from the costs of uh, of premiums, for example. And so they can get away, insurance companies can get away with charging huge premiums. You've got um, agents who sell very expensive plans or probably brokers who are, you know, making commissions on these things. And nobody, everyone is abstracted from the cost. And that tends to drive, what well, does drive the price of healthcare up. Um, we're kind of running out of time, but before I leave you, you know, you've been out of medical school for some time. Did you ever anticipate what the market would look like today? And in spite of all the frustrations, what what keeps you going? Yeah, so I I think that, you know, to be coming out of med school and having everything I worked for being taken away by 
know, third parties and insurers and having all the decisions being made by bureaucrats and, and, and people with the stroke of the pen, it was very frustrating. And so basically now working directly for the patients again is something that has extended and saved my, my career. Uh, again, to sort of just wrap up on the, the Personalized Care Act, and I think what it does is it does define the direct primary care for the purposes of the Internal Revenue Service. It fixes the, the definition of it so that health savings accounts can be used for direct care memberships. Uh, it, it allows the, the HSAs to be used for health sharing ministries, giving people just more affordable options. Uh, just because it doesn't work for you doesn't mean that somebody else can't have it, right? So it expands options for people to use their, their own money in a pre-tax way to, to choose more things, creating more competition and more innovation in the space. Uh, it expands the ability to fund these health savings accounts to correlate and correspond with the current levels of deductibles. You know, so right now the, the caps on health savings accounts contribution are less than most deductibles that are out there. So people can't even put enough in to fund the current deductible. So it fixes all that. And then it decouples and changes uh, what a health savings account uh, plan can be coupled with. So right now it has to be a very strictly defined high deductible health plan. Uh, but under this Personalized Care Act, you can decouple it from, from a traditional HSA plan uh, and put it with a sharing ministry. You can put direct primary care with a, a short-term plan. You can bundle it with indemnity plans. You can bundle it with whatever you want and use your own pre-tax dollars to, to do it. So it is a groundbreaking, game-changing uh, health law or health bill that I think will drastically improve uh, the, the access to care. It'll improve competition and improve quality and decrease costs. Yeah. Well, amen. Yeah, definitely. You know, for our listeners, uh, what can they do in terms of advancing this act, this bill and other health care reforms? Do you really think emails and calls to legislate, legislators work? Absolutely. You know, this right now does not need to be a partisan bill. And right now it's only sponsored by Republicans. Uh, I think Democrats definitely would support improving access to to direct care uh, and people empowering them to to save and keep more of their own money. So that certainly seems like a principle that that everyone would support. And we would love people to to contract their their lawmakers and ask them to co-sponsor the Personalized Care Act. That's H.R. 4803 in the House and Senate Bill 2621 in the Senate. Uh, and we need more co-sponsors on this piece of legislation. It should be a bipartisan or nonpartisan bill. Uh, and so we'd love more support for it. All right. Well, I will include links to those bills in the podcast notes and some other information. Thank you for coming on the podcast. You'll have to keep us posted on on how things are going in D.C. and get this through the gate. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. All right. Dr. Lee Gross is the chairman of DPC Action and the founder of Epiphany Health Direct Primary Care in Northport, Florida. And I will, uh, like I mentioned, mention, uh, include the names to those bills, the numbers where you can write your legislator. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in and please share the link to this podcast if you enjoyed this discussion and become a regular subscriber to the Heartland Daily Podcast. That helps uh, definitely get the free market message out. Until we meet again, this is Anne-Marie Schieber. Mm-hmm.